This is Lunch Pail VC, presented by Bullpen Capital. Each week, host Randy Comisar and I, Paul Martino, go deep into the nuts and bolts of all aspects of the venture capital business. And no, we don't ice the kicker, but we do give you a no-bull look into the VC business. We talk with exceptional VCs about all sorts of topics, including deal sourcing, deal selection, selection of your fund size, just to name a few. Welcome back to season two of our podcast. And this time we're calling it Lunchpail VC. Our focus is on how operational excellence is the actual business of venture capital. We're having current and future leaders of our business come on this podcast to talk about something that their fund is exceptional at doing. As always, I'm Paul Martino, managing partner of Bullpen Capital, along with the one and only Randy Comisar of Kleiner Perkins. <laughs> Randy. Hey, hey Paul. I am really excited by today's conversation um, with another preeminent venture capitalist. Our guest is Nahal Mehta from ENIAC Ventures. And Nahal is part of the next generation of VCs, innovating in many ways, from finding founders that break the mold to funding a new generation of Web 3.0 startups. But today he's going to talk to us about his spin on the VCs must-have skill, how to leverage your fund's network. Yeah, it is, it is a critical skill, Randy. And as both of us know, you can't maximize your flywheel without a strong network. When I asked Nahal to be one of our first guests, he immediately talked to me about how proud he is of the fact that even entrepreneurs he's given a no to thank him for the way that he added value through his network during the diligence process, and he viewed it as a key aspect to selling the ENIAC brand. I have been telling this to young venture capitalists since I got in the business, take the meeting. And ENIAC has built a business about taking the meeting. Its unique approach is that they make intros to anyone who takes the time to meet with them. And it's a serious time commitment. It was awfully hard for me to do it when I was doing it. I assume um, Nahil has the same issues. But it, something really sets in, and I'm sure it helps him with lead generation. It's quite a commitment, especially as the network grows. I can't wait to dive in. And so let's do it. Let's get on our, our founder of ENIAC Ventures, Nahal Mehta. Thanks for having me, guys. So we, we got to start with the important one here. We all do love a good firm name, right? We, we love a name like Haystack, our buddy Semmel. We love Bullpen that's functional because it talks about when you invest. So you name your company after a 1950s computer, man. You got to tell us what that's about and how we got here. Yeah. So ENIAC, the name, is actually derived from the world's first automated computer that was made in the 1940s. You know, I went to University of Pennsylvania in undergrad. I was an engineer. My partners at ENIAC were also engineers at UPenn. And so we all met freshman year in 1995 and 1996. And uh, as an engineer at ENIAC, you, we actually, uh, at Penn, you, we actually had an email address that was an homage to the ENIAC computer. And so my e email in undergrad was nahal at eniac.upenn.edu. And so we all had these ENIAC email addresses. And by the way, part of ENIAC is still there at Penn. The other part is in like the Smithsonian. And, you know, these are those big, massive computers with the, with the tubes, you know, that you plug in to like complete circuits. And it was Turing complete. And, you know, it was programmable and it was electronic. And it was, you know, the first of its kind. And so when we were starting the firm, we had a bunch of different ideas for names. We realized that we really wanted to invest alongside the future of computing. When we started out, 
investing kind of 2009-ish mobile computing was the next big thing. And we just thought the name ENIAC really suited us. You know, why not have kind of a throwback to our college days and to this computer that was built, you know, uh, decades ago uh, where we're investing along innovation of what that thing kind of kicked off. And so that was the inspiration behind the name. Of course, we started using it for a few years and then we realized, oh shit, we should probably get permission from the dean to like use this name now that, uh, you know, we're like raising fund two or whatever. And it was no longer just like a kind of an experiment. And so I'll never forget that day. We, we went back to Philly. I brought like my dog, the four of us kind of with our, literally our tail between our legs. You know, we asked the dean at that time, Dean Glant, like, you know, we've been using this name for a couple of years. Is it okay if we keep on using it? And he's like, absolutely not. Yeah, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad you came all this way and brought your dog, but now get out. Of course, he was messing with us and we're using the name, but that's where it came from. You know, if my memory serves me right, one thing I remember about ENIAC is I think that's where the term bug was invented because literally in those vacuum tubes that were connected be, by wires behind the wall, I think they had a moth or something get in into one of the circuits and they had to debug it. That Actually, that is absolutely right. The, the term bug, computer bug, literally an actual insect. The first, uh, I'm looking at it now, the first actual case of a bug was like literally in a vacuum tube. That's pretty amazing. Actually, that sheet, when they document that first actual use, the case of a bug is in the Smithsonian near part of the ENIAC. It's great. Nahal, I got a question for you, and this is really the area we're going to go into most here with you on Lunch Pail today. We want to talk about the ENIAC platform. You're 11, 12 years in, if I remember right. I think you started 2010, same time as we did. We're on six, you're on five, so about the same vintage. You've built a really interesting platform, and I know you're very proud of the way that you use your network. So talk to us about the ENIAC platform and kind of give us the intro to all the stuff on that platform, and we're going to follow up with a bunch more questions. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, I think, when we started out as entrepreneurs, even before investors, you don't initially realize this, but that, you know, life is pretty long and that in your career, hopefully there's many different cycles and, you know, there's many wins and there's losses, but it's long, right? And so you're going to run into a lot of the same people again and again and again. There's a reason that you run into certain people again and again. There's a reason you run into, I think, personally, I don't believe in complete coincidences. I believe that you run into people for a reason. But anyway, in the professional world, it's even more so. When I set out after college, I built five startups. By the way, the majority of them were unsuccessful. So three out of the five failed. Very proud of those failures. That's where you learn the most and got a lot of muscle memory and scar tissue on those on those experiences. Two of them were successes. They were acquired. But where I started building my network and I saw this through these five iterations was really like selling into, you know, Fortune 5000 enterprises and brands. Um, and a lot of these people, I realized this was kind of over a decade and a half, um, you know, would kind of move around and be like incredible innovation centers at these Fortune 5000 enterprises, you know, move around kind of every few years and also, you know, stay at the same level or even rise and oftentimes skyrocket. And so I realized that these relationships were not like very ephemeral and they weren't meant to be very transactional. 
it's also maybe just the way that I have always been kind of a social person, DJ, promoter, whatever in my past, that, you know, relationships to me are never, were never that way. So anyway, you know, you start kind of building and collecting these relationships along the way. That becomes a network and you interact with this network over time. You know, you're constantly maybe building email lists or now with social media, it's even easier to keep in touch with folks and you're growing relationships with each kind of node of the network and you're introducing other nodes to more nodes. And, you know, there's a law back again from our engineering days called Metcalf's law that says, you know, the power of the network is, is, is literally an exponential function of the nodes. And so you add another node and, you know, the network is exponentially more powerful. And that's what life is with relationships. And that's what your professional life can be with relationships. And so, so anyway, over a couple of decades, myself and my partners amassed this, you know, very large network. Uh, and by the way, our networks were not completely overlapping, which was great. And when we started investing, we realized that a lot of these same people are now, you know, the CEO of and founder of these incredible companies, right? And so now it's, people all the way up to, you know, Jack Dorsey and Sundar Pichai and whoever it is, you know, that we got a chance to meet much earlier, you know, and build relationships with. And those are like at the extreme level, but they, they run up and down all types of companies. And we realized that this is, you know, potentially a very unique superpower where we can accelerate our investments, you know, through these relationships but also, these could be very helpful, even pre-investment, doing diligence, or even just creating great introductions for founders that merely just take the time to pitch their business to us, you know? And, and that, that was like kind of my initial vision for our network. One of the most impactful things that occurred to me as a founder when I was raising venture capital, tons of VCs pass, you know? And, uh, you know, that's why we... We have a stomach for, as founders, very, very thick skin and very thick stomach. That, that's the number one quality that you need to, to have to survive and that resilience. But, you know, majority of investors pass. It's just not a fit for folks. And I remember, you know, it's obviously about just getting back up after after you get knocked down and, and you just have to get back up one more time to get that yes. But I remember very vividly this maybe six or seven investors that that passed, by the way, hundreds more passed, but the six or seven that passed, but they made an introduction to me, even after passing or before passing, that literally changed the trajectory of my business at that time. Like blew me away, like introduced me to somebody in their network that was incredibly valuable to me at that time. And that one introduction, that one conversation, that one new relationship that I was able to engage with literally changed the face of business for me at that time, right? And that was so impactful to me. I was like, holy shit, like you are taking the time out. You know, it's fine that you pass, that's okay. But you're taking the time out to like play this crazy game of memory inside your head, connecting me to somebody else because you saw the relevancy of this connection, number one. Number two, your generosity. You're not even investing in my business, but you don't care. You know, you're going to make this connection to somebody in your network very high up to help me. You know, that was, it felt like more than human. It felt more than altruistic and generous. It was just, 
it was kindness and that set the bar you know for me as a on the other side of the table as a founder you know the one or two percent of vcs that passed on me that did that and so when we were creating ENIAC, when we had the vision to build a firm that we wanted we wanted that to be part of the ethos and so kind of combining those two things the network that we amassed over this kind of couple decades the four of us plus can we get to a point in our careers where we can just make these incredible valuable introductions to almost every founder that we meet regardless of whether or not we invest like that is the bar and we're almost there i mean we're, we don't do that every single time but we strive to do that every single time uh, end of march we're launching the eniac network that kind of formalizes the latest manifestation of the structure it's like 50 folks that are very high level at fortune 5000 and, and other places that are on our website that are for our founders and founders that we meet to utilize however they want for free, you know, because we feel very strongly about this concept. First of all, I think it's, that's incredibly insightful. You know, a lot of venture capitalists will turn down a deal saying it's not a fit, and that's kind of code word for any number of things. But if it truly is not a fit, then there's still opportunities for you to add value and create a relationship that it sounds like you guys at ENIAC see that opportunity and take advantage of that. One thing that I've noticed in my career, having seen generations come in and out of venture capital, is that the networks you talk about really are about cohorts. And so you see a sort of a cohort develop their network and you see it first sort of take root maybe with young innovators and entrepreneurs. As you point out, those innovators and entrepreneurs become established, some of them very successful that becomes your sort of pull through network. And the reason I think generational diversity in a firm is important is because as these cohorts progress up the power curve, you want investors who have those key relationships with those more senior people in the industry that are going to be critical to success of these more junior entrepreneurs. At the same time, you want partners who are accessible to the new network and help pull them up. And so when you have both those generations or multiple generations in those cohorts in a firm, you end up moving up the power curve over time. Yeah, it's certainly the case. And Nahal, is, is it one of the hard things to do? And look, when you guys, the founding group, will eventually find the next group, having that continuity of the network is hard. Because there's a group of people that you came up with that was strong, exactly as Randy said, but what do you do to make sure that the next generation, 10 years younger than you and then 10 years younger than that, are getting integrated to the ENIAC network? I think that's a hard problem. I'd love your thoughts on it. Yeah, it is a hard problem. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, a lot of these cohorts are completely disjunct. That's also, by the way, the problem why there's so much that networks are not democratized that there are unfair advantages in many different networks, right? And so I think as you talk to underrepresented founders, right, they, they're hit hardest with this, right? Which is they are, they are, they are kept out of the networks of, uh, you know, even, even the word VC, you know, a lot of folks are like, how do we even connect with a, with, with a venture capitalist, right? 90% of the people we interact with on Twitter are not accessible to many people's networks because they're not democratized. And so, you know, I think one of our jobs as 
investors and leaders in kind of this industry is to try to flatten these networks and make them accessible to everybody. That is so true. And I, I've really been impressed recently having sat on a number of boards where we're trying to create public company boards with the new laws requiring inclusion at the board level. And, and I had originally, frankly, been cautious about those laws. I was worried that they would demean the real achievements and abilities and talents of these diverse people. But having that forcing function both helps the class of inclusive members, but it also broadens that network. And it, and it doesn't give you any way to avoid it. it. There's no excuses. You have to do it. It doesn't become debatable. It's not, it's not philosophy. It's the law. And I'm sure we'll see negative ramifications from that. Some, but I think the positive ramifications we're seeing right off the start are just, as you point out now, they're expanding these networks in ways that are not natural. I was thinking about a very early conversation I had with one of our mentors, Mike Maples at Floodgate. And when he created Floodgate, I'm sure Randy and Paul, you know Mike very well. He was probably one of the first kind of OG seed firms. You know, we probably all started around the same time. Obviously, Mike has illustrious career that predates that from the firm perspective, kind of, you know, 09, 2010. He built Floodgate with diversity at the core, right? His partner, Anne, if you look at his entire team, and you never see him kind of beating his chest or touting or flexing, you know, that he's got Floodgate is, is number one in diversity and we have more women investors than men. And, you know, that's, he could, that's not what he does. And so we had a, we saw a podcast back in the day called Seat to Scale, and we interviewed him, and it's like, dude, what, can you talk about that? Because, like, you were literally one of the most diverse firms coming out of the gate that never, that nobody knew about the, their diversity. And he said, because that's my competitive advantage. I don't want anybody to know. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, because, you know, and Tim Cook obviously talks about this all the time, like, you know, you get the most diverse perspectives and you have the most innovation when diversity is at your core. And I think when you're making a decision, especially when we're making a decision to do a deal, the more diverse opinions that are at the table, you know, the smarter you're going to be. You know, Nahal, to that point, what's interesting to me as I wrestle with this going forward, when you're looking at people who have not been included in the network traditionally, if you're evaluating them on the exact same standards as you evaluate people who have been successful in the network, you will always favor the people who have been successful in the network. You have to look outside the normal calibrations, realizing that these people have been excluded and can't be judged on the same metrics because those metrics weren't available to them. And that requires a hard set in terms of reset, in terms of perspective on how you think about building the network. Yeah, yeah, no, that that's absolutely right. Uh, you know, I think we talked about kind of democratizing access, you know, to venture capital. And I think a lot of folks have done this. At ENIAC, our approach is we launched an open pitch page, you know, just ENIAC.vc slash pitch, where anybody anywhere can submit a business plan. It's not that you have to come in from a warm intro. Like, what the hell is a warm intro? Warm intro means closed network, right? A warm intro means you need to be networked with this person. No, like, that's exactly what we're trying to eliminate. Like, but how do we make it completely wide open and available? So the first iteration of that is this pitch page, eniac.vc slash pitch. And, you know, we've gotten thousands of business plans, you know, in the past weeks from all over the world. And we're going to try to get back to everybody, you know, as quickly as we can. But 
I think that's one way that you can kind of democratize access to venture. And ideally, we hope to do a few investments from this completely cold, cold inbound. Nahal, this will warm your heart. We did several of our deals in funds one and two that were completely cold intros. I think we did the stats. It was something like 15% of the deals that were in funds one and two were basically cold emails on LinkedIn. And I'll never forget going into pitch meetings with LPs in fund three, explaining to them that we basically had said, look, bullpen is about finding essentially companies off by one. You didn't go to the fancy school. It's a category people hates or your geography people don't like, right? That's the, that's the whole bullpen ethos. I remember a couple LPs looking at me going, well, do you know how to do your job? I mean, you did a deal off LinkedIn. Like you could see their heads explode because you're not supposed to, uh, Paul, are you sure you know what you're doing? I'm like, well, yeah, it turns out that was a really good deal. And that person was out of the network. I, I didn't need a warm intro from the hall. Like, it turned out that was a really good business that happened to be in Orlando, Florida, or Edinburgh, Scotland. And it was very funny to see how much education it took for us, the GPs, back to the LPs to explain to them that you aren't going to find the unloved company if it needs a warm intro. You're just not going to find it. Well, I admire you both on this. And, I, and I'll tell you where some of that LP philosophy came from, because for years, we as venture capitalists kept telling them that we had these bespoke networks that were highly confidential and protected. And so I think they all got to listen to those pitches all the time thinking, well, to be successful, you've got to have this protected network and it's got to be, you know, it's exclusive. And frankly, I really admired the way that you guys have stepped out of that because it, it, it takes intentionality and it takes time and effort to do what you guys are doing. Yeah. At the end of the day, it provides better results. That was the output from the Mike Maples talk. I think we've seen it now at ENIAC. Actually, the biggest the firm's ever been. We're still tiny. We're 12 folks. But we're an incredibly diverse team. And every team meeting, every team discussion on every investment opportunity is very lively. You know, And I think the worst thing that you can have as a team is groupthink. And we criticize ourselves if everybody, you know, we vote, whatever, one to 10, everybody gets to vote on de on deals and categories. And whenever people are like around the same, we're like, we're doing something wrong. Like we need the counter to this. We need to understand all perspectives of opinions before to make the smartest decision. And so that, you know, that's what we try to optimize for. I think hopefully that's where, you know, that so far so good. That's where the best returns are coming from. So let's see. Nahal, what we did 20-something years ago is we tried to do a bit of what you're doing with this virtual network. We tried to create these, I guess you'd call them conferences or confabs, where every quarter we would bring in some of the best and brightest and most accomplished people in their area, whether it was CMO or whether it was, you know, chief security officer or whether it was, you know, CFOs. And we would build, intentionally build those sorts of cohorts and then have our entrepreneurs come in and present to them, have exposure to them, have discussions and get feedback, et cetera. That was an attempt to do that in a very structured way. It was limited because you ended up sort of defining the group and that became the group. And yeah, you can make changes over time, but it became pretty rigid over time. Uh, your approach is much more fluid um, and uh, much more inclusive. Can you, can you sort of Tell me how you came up with your approach and how you, how you think that's going to work longer term and making sure that 
these resources aren't being monopolized or overwhelmed by the requests of your um, entrepreneurs or would-be entrepreneurs? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it's still we're still throttling the requests, right? So we're still like the people in the middle. That will always be the case. I don't think this will be a fully automated system, and nor it should be. Our, our industry is venture capital is a very services oriented business, and that's all it is. And it's you know that game of memory, knowing that this person may want to connect with you on this very specific topic and be able to help your trajectory is something that like is a very unique skill to humans and not robots. And so I just feel like we're throttling the requests. I think it happens. It also helps that we have a really strong supply on the network side. Like there's like 50 folks already that are like agreed. Like we sent them like ENIAC hoodies, you know, that they, (laughs) that they love to wear and, 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 and they put, you know, ENIAC network on their LinkedIn next week. And like, they kind of, they're fired up to have as many conversations as possible. By the way, the ulterior motive for them is, you know, for example, my buddy who's, you know, the SVP of digital at Citibank, for example, is in the network. And his ulterior motive is one, he looks smart as hell inside Citibank to his boss when he brings a company in that's, you know, pushing the envelope on FinTech, for example, and something that Citi might use, may or may not use, uh, license, partner with, acquire. That's one. Two is, you know, if we're going to do a round, like he can write an angel check. You know, that's incredible ROI, be able to, you know, write a check inside a seed round on a company that is about to fly. So there's a few different in other incentives, I, I think, that make it really palpable for these folks to stay engaged, to take as many meetings as, as they want. But I think it's helpful that we have such a stable of people and then also that we're in, in between. They're not just randomly interacting with them ad nauseum without any context. Totally. I mean, I think that's an important, an important insight because you got to add value on both sides of that network, right? You can't just simply say, well, I'm adding value to the entrepreneurs because they have access to this great network. If the people providing that value don't also see some value in the proposition, you're not going to have them around very long. And the second thing is, you know, I think the other insight you've got is you don't have to buy these people. I mean, everybody thinks, well, these are expensive people. That's not why they're doing it. I mean, you you listed two reasons why they're doing it. I'll give you a third, which is they're just excited by being part of the new. I mean, having these discussions, hearing these new insights, being able to talk about some new vector in the industry that's in, that's exciting to them. And so if you have the right people, they get enthusiastic by the hoodie and by the conversation. Yeah, that's right. Especially in today's world where like things are moving so quickly, right? Like just, just think about Web3 and how, and how fast that's moving. And by the way, whether or not it inspired the great resignation, right? Recently of venture capitalists kind of at the height of Web2 in the past, you know, in the past year, it probably had something to do with it, right? Which is like, how the hell do I stay relevant when I have no idea, you know, what the hell a DAO is and what the hell DeFi is and how do I get this airdrop to me and like, what is going on, you know? And so, so I think like more than ever, there is that need for people to just stay relevant. And so I think that's absolutely right. They want to be just attached to the new. 
one of the things I would love for you to talk about is you really not only built your network, you made your network accessible, but you actually put it on display. You host some really cool events in New York. You've had a great conference. Obviously, COVID's changed a lot of stuff. But talk to me how you, about how you've leveraged events and being a kind of New York homer, for lack of a better word, even though you did go to school in Philly. Talk to us about how you really raised the flag for New York, made ENIAC a real brand, and how the conferences and events helped you build that network. Yeah, I mean, you know, networks are, you know, much more tangible IRL. And I think the pandemics are challenging so many reasons for so many different people. And we were able to still maintain network digitally, but a big part of networks are serendipity. And serendipity really only exists in the real world. I mean, or maybe in Roblox, you know, to kids. But that's it. And so like, you know, I mean, listen, I'll give you my 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 DNA. I say I'm just like a DJ, like nightclub promoter who like fell into computer science and tech. And that's my ethos though, right? I am a ENFP, like Myers-Briggs, like I am a hardcore extrovert. And, you know, I was a social chair of Pi Lambda Phi, you know, at 4010 Spruce in Philly. Like, you know, that's who I am at my core. Uh, I was handing out flyers for parties, you know, until I was 30 years old you know, on street corners, right? And so I still throw parties for my wife's, you know, book tour, right? So that's like, that is my core. And so I think that physical manifestation of the network is something where it truly shines and probably where it originated. And so in the early days of ENIAC, to your point, Paul, we used to throw a conference called the M1 Summit. Early days of ENIAC, by the way, funds one and two, we were almost exclusively focused on mobile software. You know, we wanted to, like I mentioned, we were all operating mobile software businesses, investing in mobile businesses. That was the part of computing that was really coming up at that time, right after the iPhone came out and the Android came out. And so we really wanted to double down and verticalize hardcore to track those opportunities. And so we branded this conference called the M1 Summit, the Mobile First Summit. And they were hugely successful. You know, we did them in New York and San Francisco. We had, you know, minimum 1,000 folks, highly curated, invite-only at these events, completely sponsored, you know, incredible speakers, right? Like I remember our keynote from M1 Summit, the first one was Ken Chenault, you know, CEO of Amex, right before he was launching something, like literally like one of their first ways to pay by, you know, by text, I think. This is like, I don't know, 2010, 2011. You know, so anyway, we really spent a lot of time and energy creating these highly curated events. And it wasn't only curated on the supply side, like the speakers and the programming was highly curated, but on the demand side as well. So like you could not just buy a ticket to this conference. You had to be invited and you were invited for a reason, you know? And I think the time and effort to create that resulted in this magic, which is, you know, you can create this event and put people in a building and when they meet each other, and I, I made this joke, I remember like the kickoff of the summits is like, everybody in this room is here for a reason. All I ask is after you meet, you know, you let us invest in your seed round and give us 20%. Because, you know, I think you put these incredible people together, they make magic, and then they kind of remember kind of where they met, or you hope that they remember where they met. They met under the guise of ENIAC. And so I think that really helped our brand. It helped uh, us in New York. It helped us verticalize hardcore and mobile it attract our best deals in the firm to date one of our very first investments through this mobile focus was a company called tap commerce founder named brian long created that business sold it to twitter 
came back again and we did his seed round of his new company called Attentive, which has got to be one of the fastest growing companies in New York tech today. The last valuation that was public was just under 10 billion and it's still growing uh, leaps and bounds. But, you know, that came out of this mobile, hardcore mobile branding that we ran at in the early you know, early 2010s. Now, we then changed more of a generalist kind of 2014, 2015, 2016, when it was very clear that the mobile internet is now the ubiquitous internet and that there was no need to have a very specific mobile specialization. And so, you know, today we are very broadly like seed stage tech generalists, but it would have been hard to start like that. You know, it would have been very hard to start as a generalist. It is very hard today, even harder today because there's so many freaking new funds every single day to start as a generalist. And so I think that vertical focus served us well, and it will serve other funds well, too, as they're coming up. But that's what we went hard at. I think that was one of our keys to success early in branding us mobile and branding us New York. And so we're proud of that. Now, we stopped doing those events because they took up a ton of time, ton of bandwidth to like have those huge events, highly curated on both sides. But it de- they definitely served our purpose. Now, I think what we're putting our energy towards is come back to these smaller events. So we have an office in Soho, Prince and Broadway. We're planning to use that office a few times a month to do things in and out of portfolio, like doing a PR workshop for founders and their marketing heads, doing a vertical SaaS event with maybe fintech companies or edtech companies or health tech companies, you know, and just having founders connect with other founders in and out of our portfolio. Um, and just the community at large, being able to connect IRL, you know, again, the same vision and spirit of M1, which is like, let's just create the environment. You guys are invited here for a reason, work your magic. And then, you know, you're going to hopefully remember ENIAC that, you know, brought you together or, or not. We don't care, but we want 20%. You and your founding team did a great job with this entire leverage of the network, but you've got another dozen or so people, 10, 12 people in the firm. How have you taught this leverage the network down? How have you gotten your more junior partners on board with this? How are you kind of teaching this philosophy forward as you grow your firm? We're still iterating through it. I think all the juniors would say that a big part of like ENIAC today is is our network. And I think as we're planning for ENIAC to potentially live beyond us, you know, we need to think about what that turns into, you know, uh, if it's no longer our networks, can they inherit those networks? Can they build their own networks or just know the importance of network to us in our business? And I think it's probably the latter. I think it's the latter because I see a lot of them working very hard to develop their own networks. And so a junior investor, for example, an associate at ENIAC is now creating, you know, happy hours and lunches with other associates at other firms and then setting up get togethers with, you know, for example, Web3 happy hours with Web3 founders. And so I think at least the importance of the network to us, like that spirit has been passed on to them. I think it's going to be hard you know, networks are hard to inherit, you know, because they're so personal. And so, you know, but I, I think when they're copied on emails and they see, you know, just looking at a few emails I sent today and it's, there's always a few lines like, hey, like, good to see you like two weeks ago or like, how's your dog doing? Like, you know, and those are authentic, real, like friend 
messages that friends would send to other friends, right? And because people in the network are your friends. And so I think they're all copied on these messages and they realize that that's part of the business. And so we're hopeful that they will, and they are developing their own networks in the same way. So I think that's what we teach them. To utilize our network, I think it's still going to be, like I mentioned, whoever the point of contact is like on that relationship is going to be the person that is going to do the the matching you know, between the founders and, and the experts, because I think it's, I think it's awkward when it comes from somebody else. Right. And it's not nearly as impactful, like, or effective. So yeah, I think the takeaway is they got to, they realize the thematic importance of this and they have to build their own networks. That's great. Well, my last question for you is the non-investing partners in your firm, Tell us what your non-investing partners do and how they contribute to this whole process. That's my last one for you. Yeah. So we have, you know, obviously four GPs, four of us have known each other now for 27 years and more than half our lives, you know, since freshman year in college. Um, and then four junior investors. So it's kind of eight on the investment team out of 12. And so there's four non-investment team members. One is uh, Anthony Ha, who runs content and marketing. Anthony's a legend. For those that don't know him, he was at TechCrunch for a decade, VentureBeat before that. We pitched him as founders like infinite number of times and were rejected by him infinite amount of times, you know, when he was at TechCrunch. Uh, but also he did write some stories about our, our companies as well. Anyway, he's been incredible um, because we have, we realize we have so many first party insights at ENIAC that we want to we don't have the energy of bandwidth to synthesize and then publish. And so that's, he's an artist in that sense. You know, he's kind of translating what we see working with our founders and then synthesizing that into, you know, putting words on a, a blog or a video or a tweet and just publishing it, you know, to the world. So that's what he does. I think since he's joined about a year ago, we've been putting out almost like one piece a week, which is like incredible. And I think that's really helped our brand and our portfolio. Um, and then we have um, Rifki, who runs finance. She's incredible. Actually, she was our year as well at Wharton. We didn't know her at undergrad because uh, the joke is that she was actually in class when we weren't. And she keeps all the trains running on time. You know, she's great. She's uh, above our pay grade for uh, all this stuff that, you know, we don't understand. We got co public companies now. We have, you know, QSBS and and cap gain, you know, all this fun stuff, secondaries, there's a transaction basically a day that's happening at the firm and she's on top of it. Reagan runs community, you know, which is a big, a very big part of network. And so, you know, making sure these different subsets of community, community, by the way, one is the team, the 12 of us, we have lunches and dinners and happy hours and have fun and stay safe and work efficiently and effectively. We have our founder community now 150 plus strong. We have our LP community. We have an AGM every May, which she's helping with. And then we have the greater kind of tech community where we do events and want to interact uh, with them as much as we can. And so she runs all of that. She runs community. And then our secret weapon is, is our ninja EA, a guy named Dan. He literally runs the 12 of us. One human being. His wife, by the way, he's a spouse of a highly ranked Navy official who travels all over the country. And so he, the only thing consistent with him is he, he's got a laptop and a phone wherever she is. He's, he's there. He just crushes for our team and, you know, 
we obviously feel very proud to be able to employ like a spouse of an incredible service member doing incredible work, but like that's our secret weapon by far. And so anyway, those are the four non-investment team members, uh, Anthony, Reagan, Dan, and Rifke. They all are absolutely incredible at what they do, and we're very fortunate to have them on the team. Well, in the hall, we, we cannot thank you enough for being a guest here on Lunch Pail VC. How you run your fund, operational excellence, venture capitalists teaching other venture capitalists about what they do well. Nahal, thanks for your time and your great point of view. On behalf of Randy and I, we're signing off. Thanks for having me. You guys are awesome. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Lunchbell VC was created by Randy Komisar and me, Paul Martino. It was produced by the great team at Edit Audio. If you want to follow more of our guest's journey, check out the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a review and tell your budding VC friends to listen to us. They might actually learn something. Again, I'm Paul Martino, and on behalf of Randy Komisar, see you next time.